welcome to the Christchurch Winston-Salem podcast. To learn more about Christchurch, visit us at ChristchurchWS.org. Subscribe to our podcast at our website, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. Come Holy Spirit and anoint the preaching of your word this morning, Lord. I pray that the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit would begin a new work of sanctification and of growth and holiness of heart and life in our midst this morning, Lord. Shake us up where we are asleep, Lord. We, we need to be wakened up. Please come Holy Spirit and bring us to an, a greater consecration and a deeper walk of holiness in Jesus Christ. And we ask that you would accomplish that now, beginning with your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen. amen. You may be seated. Well, as many of you are aware, this is the season of Lent. We're in the season of Lent right now. It was a season that was originally created by the church years and years and years and years and years ago in order to help prepare uh, new converts to the faith, new believers in Jesus Christ, to prepare them for holy baptism. And so there was a period of time where people were instructed in the faith leading up to the great Feast of Easter, and during that time, people were given uh, the information they needed. But more than that, they were instructed in the scriptures and in the way of the Christian life. It was also a time, it became also an important time, this season of Lent, for when believers had committed notorious sins. Now, that must have been in the past. We don't do that anymore, no notorious sins here. But when believers had committed notorious sins, there was a season of reconciliation that preceded the great feast of Easter. And so there would be a time for deepening prayer and uh, confession and repentance, uh, acknowledging one's sinfulness. And then that, that person who had committed grievous sins would be brought back into the fellowship of the believers, brought back into the life of the church. And then on that great celebration of Easter, which really began on the, in that late, late night, early morning, Saturday before Easter Sunday morning, they would be restored to the body of believers and they would get to uh, get to com- have Holy Communion again and, and they would be back among the believers. But for most of us, year after year, the way most of us experience this season is as a time of renewed commitment, renewing our devotion to Jesus Christ. As I've said on multiple occasions, our discipleship tends to have a leak in it. We tend to leak in our discipleship. And uh, sometimes that leaking really becomes a, a big a big leak during the Christmas season when we're just going nuts. You know, we should be feasting, but sometimes we forget our spiritual disciplines. So, but for most of us, we experience Lent year by year as a time for renewing our walk with Jesus Christ through focusing again on the means of grace, on the spiritual disciplines Outlined for us in Holy Scripture, things like Bible study. We are a Bible church at Christ Church. The Anglican way of being a follower of Jesus is a Bible church way of being a follower of Jesus. Also through prayer, devoting ourselves more deeply to prayer, to fasting. I hope that you're fasting during Lent. I hope that you're fasting when it's not Lent. Lent is a, I mean, uh, fasting is a critical part of our spiritual life regularly, and by the way, regularly means weekly attendance upon the worship of God, and then the giving of alms, being generous with the resources that God has given us. 
So one way, I think in concert with that, one way of experiencing Lent is as a season about, are you ready? A season about sanctification. And that's one of those buzzwords. We'll have to, to define it here in a minute, but it's a, a Bible word, sanctification. It's a season of reviving our attention to becoming more set apart. That's literally what sanctification means. More set apart to God. My life becoming less about Ben Sharp and more about Jesus Christ for growing in personal holiness of heart and life. Hey, the Anglican way of being a Christian is a holiness way of being a Christian. Who knew? It really is because we're a Bible way of being Christians. And that's why this passage that we heard read this morning from Titus chapter 2 is our focus this Sunday. Titus, Titus chapter 2 verses 11 through 14 directly addresses the topic of grace. All right, and this is critical for understanding what we're going to be doing here. The topic of grace and how that grace is expressed in the Christian's life. We have actually, for this Sunday, departed from the assigned Bible readings for the second Sunday of Lent because the Holy Spirit has it's been like a drumbeat, bringing this particular passage back to my mind and heart over and over again over the course of the last months, really. And I think there's a reason for that. There is a sense of urgency related to this passage of Scripture because there are several popular misunderstandings about what grace means, what grace means as it relates to our sanctification. So the two benchmarks of this sermon are grace and sanctification. Now, I think many of us, uh, I think many of us track, I think many of us have some understanding of God's work of, listen, justifying grace in our lives. And what do I mean by justifying grace? Well, one key passage, and maybe it was a memory verse for you, it certainly has been for me, comes from Ephesians chapter 8, I mean chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. You will not find Ephesians 8 in our Bible. Well, it may be, it may be in there next to Hezekiah, I don't know. Um, but Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, this is what St. Paul tells the Ephesian church, for by grace, You have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one could boast. In fact, that passage probably is one of the best verses for encapsulating in a very short form the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ. What is that gospel? When we were God's enemies, Romans 5.10, when we were God's enemies, when we were lost and unable to, to do anything to save ourselves, Luke 5.8-10, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1, when we, when we had no hope and were without God in the world, Ephesians 2.12, God in His great love acted unconditionally on our behalf. When we were dead in trespasses and sin, we couldn't help ourselves. We were God's enemies. God in love acted on our behalf unconditionally. He gave Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, to reconcile you and me and all of creation to himself through the cross of Calvary. And now we can be granted a new life. We can be born again. We can become new creations who will enjoy God throughout eternity 
filled with joy and blessing when we place our trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Some of y'all are bored by now because you already know this stuff. And we know that we can't earn that new life. There are no good works we can do to earn our salvation. This is a totally free, unmerited gift from our loving God to undeserving sinners like me. And I think many of us, that work of salvation that God alone can do, this work of regeneration in the life of the believer that comes under the heading of justifying grace, justifying grace, many of us get that. Many of us get that. But what we seem to be having a hard time understanding is how God's continuing grace in our lives God's how that grace operates in the life of the believer for the purpose of our sanctification. Now, I told you we'd have to kind of unpack sanctification. So one short way of defining in part, not in total, but in part, the process of the Christian be, uh, of sanctification is the Christian being made just like Jesus in our character. Sanctification in part, it's not the fullness of sanctification, but what we're going to deal with this morning, sanctification is the process of the Christian being made just like Jesus in our character. It is being set apart completely to God, just like Jesus. And I have, oh my goodness, I got so many proof texts, so you'll have to get the notes to get all those. But being made like Jesus is a work of God. Being made like Jesus, this work of sanctification, is a work of God through the power of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life. Now, here's where the breakdown occurs for many contemporary Christians. We think that grace means that we can sit here on our blessed assurance... Passively, inertly, inertly, and that God will zap us and our characters will just change to become Christ-like. Well, if we are going to be Bible Christians, we cannot go down that train of thought. We can't go down that road. It's an unbiblical teaching. Here is the mystery of sanctifying grace revealed in Titus chapter 2. Yes, God is the initiator and the originator of the work of holiness in your life and in my life. But God has so designed his human creature that, and this is, you need to listen to this, that it necessarily, necessarily requires our activity, our involvement, our personal struggle to grow in holiness. Um, I think it was G.K. Chesterton that said that Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. Christianity has been found difficult and not tried. Grace in the believer's life, this work of sanctification does require our activity, our involvement, our, our personal struggle to grow in holiness. This, this is the mystery. The mystery is God's grace and our human agency working together. And I can't fully understand that. But God's grace and my agency, it matters 
what I do in this life, what I do in this body, my agency is important. And so, uh, uh, Titus chapter 2, for the grace of God has appeared. It's a, this is a passage about grace, bringing salvation for all people, praise God. And what does it do? Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the great by and by. No, in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now, let's just break that down a little bit. Yes, that passage starts with the grace of God. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. But that grace is not merely a passive verdict of not guilty. Ben Sharp, you horrible sinner, you. Jesus died for you. He shed his blood for you on the cross. Not guilty. Now get on with it. It's not merely a passive experience of a not guilty verdict. Grace, it says here, it trains us. The great grace trains us. It schools us. For the grace of God has appeared, training us, training us. That word grace, I mean, that word training, that word schooling in the Greek is, is a verb form of a word you might know if you're a part of an, if you're an educator. The word is paideia, paideia. And in the ancient Greek world, Greek city-states, youth would go through the process of paideia. Youth would be taken through a process of paideia. Paideia was a form of education that had as its goal not just informing youth, but shaping the character of the youth so that the young person could grow up to be a full participant in the life of the community of the polis. This is going somewhere. And here's where, here's where it's going. That means the paideia, the grace of God paideas us. It trains us, it schools us to have the character to fully experience and live into the kingdom of God, the polis of God, the community of God. We are not naturally in our flesh equipped to do that. We have to be trained, and grace does that. So the very first thing that God's grace trains us to do, what is it? Look at verse 12. This is uh, Titus chapter 2, verse 12. It says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Titus chapter 2, verse 12. So the grace of God, listen, God's grace is on a sin-killing mission in your life. God's grace is on a sin-killing mission in your life. If you are genuinely a born-again follower of Jesus Christ then God's grace is already present in your life. You don't have to go out and order some from Amazon.com. It's, it's You got that when you got saved. 
God, the Holy Spirit, lives in you by definition if you are a born-again follower of Jesus Christ. But you and I have to do, we have to do, training us. Who is us? Training us to renounce. Who's doing the renouncing? Us. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And there's a struggle to that. There is a struggle in the Christian life. The Christian life, the Christian way has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and not tried. So it trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. That means renounce clicking on porn. Renounce that illicit flirtation. Renounce lying. I am becoming more and more aware that some of our lives are like an onion, layer upon layer of self-deception and other deception. Self-deception and other deception. Renounce the lie. We live so comfortably with our lives. Lies. Renounce them. Renounce stealing. Renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Oh, well, I'm so happy to hear that. I am not struggling with any of those sins. The rest of this sermon ought to be okay for me. Well, how about this? Renounce that bitterness of heart and resentment and grumbling and murmuring that some of us have so carefully cultivated. That is ungodliness. It's hurting you. It hurts the church. It is sin, and there is no excuse for it. I don't care what your excuse is. The Bible says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, Paul says, do all things, do all things, not some things, do all things, all things, not just the parts I like, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Some of us are murmurers, and it is a sin against God and His church. Paul says, do all things without grumbling and disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent. If you're grumbling, you're not blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish. It is time to stop excusing our disobedience. Some of us are stuck in the same place we were 10 years ago or 20 years ago, because we will not employ the grace God has already given us to kill our sin. And I know it's a struggle. I struggle with it. Stop waiting for God to zap you. He already has. Repent of our spiritual sloth. If we are talking all that religious talk, We love to get together and talk about Jesus. But we are not renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions and striving to live, quote, self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Then our Christianity, brothers and sisters, is just words and it is not real. As Isaiah says in Isaiah 29, verse 13, And the Lord said, This people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. It is a sad but unavoidable unavoidable conclusion that there are many false brothers and sisters in the church of God. So here are some specific things the Word of God needs to correct in His church this morning directly related to grace, 
and our struggle for holiness. Three false beliefs that stand between us and the fullness of joy and abundant life that Jesus Christ has promised us and our victory as followers of Christ. The first one is this, all right? It is the false belief, it is the false belief that to contribute our effort to God's work of sanctification is a denial of the gospel and a return to bondage to works righteousness. That is a false belief. That is not what St. Paul believes. It's not what he so clearly articulates in the gospel of grace that he preaches, speaking of his own Christian life. Ready? Paul's own apostolic ministry. Paul says this in Colossians chapter 1, verse 29. Paul says, for this, what? Living out, not, not becoming shipwrecked in my apostolic ministry, not, not denying the gift that God has given me, the work he's given me to do in his kingdom. For this, Listen to what Paul says. For this I toil. Toil sounds like work. <laughs> just like it. And then he doesn't just leave us there. He goes on to say, for this I toil, struggling, agonistomai, agonizing for, struggling for this I toil, struggling. Okay, ooh, toil and struggle in the Christian life? That can't be right. I heard it was all grace, grace, grace. Well, it is because the very next thing he says, for this I toil struggling with all his energy, not my energy, his energy that he powerfully works within me. Do you hear that? Paul says living out his Christian life includes toil and struggle, but the energy, the grace To do that comes from God powerfully working in us. Again, this is the union of human agency and grace in the believer's life. And it is a mystery. And Paul even points back to the act of justification on the cross in Titus chapter 2 we just read. Titus 2, when he says that Jesus, listen to what Paul says here. He does come back to justification. He says that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. His act of justification purchases us by his to redeem. It's like when you go take a coupon in, you're redeeming a coupon, you're purchasing something with that coupon. It redeems us, it purchases us, that act of justification purchases us by His blood so that we are not under the bondage to lawlessness and that we are made zealous for good works. So not so that you can just, it's not merely a get out of hell free card. And if this, if purchasing us from lawlessness, if we are wallowing in lawlessness and we are not zealous for good works, then the full measure of what Jesus shed his blood on the cross for has not been revealed in my life yet. Jesus died to kill our sin and to not use his, and to not use his grace to kill our sin is to despise and belittle his sacrifice. Now the second false belief is the false belief that the hundreds of commandments in the New Testament are not, yes, I said commandments. 
Sorry, that word shows up in the New Testament, y'all. The second false belief is that the hundreds of commands in the New Testament are not really commands, but merely there to show us what sinners we are in needs of grace, in need of grace. Look at all these commandments. Love one another. Forgive your enemies. See, you can't do that. Jesus did that, but you can't do that. Now you're just going to have to go running back to the cross and, and, you know, just be a horrible sinner, but at least you were saved by grace. Those commandments, the false belief is that those commandments of the New Testament are not really commands, but merely they show us what sinners we are in need of grace. No, brothers and sisters, God means it. He's not playing a head game with you. This is not a head game. When the script, when we have an apostolic commandment, we have a commandment from our Lord Jesus Christ, it's a commandment. Those commandments are not, they do not place us under the burden of law in order that we just barely meet God's standards. No, we're completely accepted by grace in Jesus Christ. But these commandments, listen to me, are given that we might enter into the fullness of joy. It's like, here are the, here are the mile markers, Christian. If you want to live the abundant life, he came to give us life, life more abundantly, John 10, 10. If you want to live that abundant life and you want to say, how do I do that? I don't seem to be doing that. Well, he gave you the way markers. Just follow the way markers and you might find there's joy unspeakable and full of glory waiting for you. John Piper, that great Anglican, Reformed Baptist says, he says, 1 Peter 2.24 doesn't get its fair shake. Christ, this is 1 Peter 2.24, Christ bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Christ died, Piper says, to purchase your obedience to hundreds of commands, and he died to purchase the spirit who dwells within you, who causes you to walk in his statutes. The beauty and the power of the cross of Christ is seen and enjoyed in the blood-bought experience of a blood-bought experience of obedience to Christ's commands. Experiencing this is a dimension of joy that can be had no other way. All those commandments in the New Testament are not given merely to expose our sin. They are given to show us the kind of life Christ died to create in His church, really create in His church. And the third false belief, and this is where we're going to start wrapping things up, the first false belief is this, that spontaneity... Spontaneity is equals authentic discipleship. Spontaneity equals authentic discipleship. This is a false belief. Uh, in fact, N.T. Wright helpfully identifies the content of this fallacy. This is the fallacy. Don't read this and agree with it. Don't hear this and agree with it, okay? This is wrong. So what he's saying is he says this is the fallacy. In today's church, in today's Western church, What matters is authenticity. Being true to yourself is what counts. God has accepted you as you are. Now you must live out of gratitude for that acceptance. Any attempt, any attempt to force yourself to keep particularly moral rules and standards which seem alien to you is a denial of both God's free acceptance of you and of your own authentic existence. After you believe, you should discover who you, discover who you really are. Discover it. And live in accordance with that 
doing spontaneously whatever your heart at its deepest level instructs you to do. That is a false belief. It is not what the Holy Scriptures teach us. Christian character is not authentic, uh, is not being spontaneous and authentic based on our most inward discovery of who we are. Christian character is conformity to the character of Christ. Christian character is conformity to the character of, of Christ, and it is not what comes spontaneously. If it does for you, bless your heart. I am jealous, really, really jealous. But being consistent and conformed to the character of Christ is not what comes naturally for me. It is not our first nature. Christian character is not our first nature. It is a learned, listen carefully, and you might want to write this down. It is a learned second nature. It has to be learned and it has to be fought for. It has to be struggled for. Listen to 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. That whole first, man, I love that, that chapter of the Bible. It's, it's just awesome. But this is what it says in 2 Peter 1, 5 and following. This is what he is instructing believers to do. Who is he talking to? He's talking to people who have accepted Christ, who are following Jesus. Peter says, for this very reason, for this very reason, make every effort. Ooh, effort. To supplement your faith with virtue. And virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness. Do you see a progression here? You see a learned progression? You see that our involvement is necessary? Do you see that there is an effort required? Not it's, it's by His power that so powerfully worketh in us, but it's still an effort. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control. Sounds a lot like Titus, doesn't it? And self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness. We see some of the same words again. And godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, They keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And some of us, the reason we are ineffective and unfruitful is we are not in this progression of holiness. They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind haven't forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent... Diligent, diligent, again, it's one of those effort words, to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice, not if you think about these, you know, if you read about them, if you get a book, if you go to a conference, no, if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Back on Thursday, January 15, 2009, almost exactly 10 years ago, Flight 1549 U.S. Airways left LaGuardia Airport in New York City to fly to Charlotte, North Carolina, from one Yankee town to another Yankee town. (laughs) Sorry. You know what you're dealing with now. The pilot of that flight, as you know, was Chesley Sullenberger III, or as everyone knows him, Sully. He was flying the Airbus 320, and as they took off from LaGuardia, 
They flew through a flock of Canada geese. Lots of things are good for airplanes. Sucking geese into the engines is not one of them. They're flying over the Bronx, one of the most densely populated um, parts of, of New York City. And they know if they go down in the Bronx, not only will everyone in the airplane die, everyone, many people where that plane hits are going to die. They couldn't fly to the next nearest airport. They couldn't land on the New Jersey Turnpike. Again, these were not options that were available. The only option remaining was to ditch in the Hudson River. They had two minutes to prepare, two minutes to prepare for a water landing. As you know, everyone survived that water landing. How did that happen? Was it because Sully was spontaneous and authentic to his deepest self? No. It is because he had trained Paideia, trained for thousands of hours in a flight simulator for exactly that experience. And so it was all of the things he had to do, cut off the engines, prepare to ditch in water, which means you had to cut off all of the external vents, make that that turn, that steep angle turn and into uh, the Hudson River Basin there and and make sure that you attained enough airspeed so the nose had to be down, but then at the last minute you had to pull that nose up so that it didn't hit the water and flip in over end. You had to make sure you were going with the flow of the water in the Hudson River. About a hundred different decisions had to be made instantaneously. How did that happen? It was because his Character had been formed in two ways. First of all, the flight simulator. So he had what was not first nature became his second nature. He didn't didn't even have to think of it. But more than that, his character as a man had been developed through a thousand little decisions over the course of his life. So that after the plane had ditched, he stayed in the aircraft and went back up and down the aisles at least twice, making sure no one was left behind. And when he got into the inflatable life craft that was deployed by the aircraft, when he got in there in the freezing January weather, he took off his outer clothing. His shirt literally took the shirt off his back to put around a passenger suffering from cold. Where does that come from? It comes from a character that has been formed by a thousand small decisions. And that's what we face as followers of Jesus Christ. To grow in holiness is a thousand small decisions. To renounce sin and to live self-controlled, godly and upright lives in the present age. May God's grace, Philippians, work in us to will and to do, to will and to do His good pleasure. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Christchurch, visit us at ChristChurchWS.org. Subscribe to our podcast at our website, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts.